Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents his teaching, Jesus Put You in the Driver's Seat. All right, praise the Lord. This morning, I want to help you see from the scriptures that when it comes to your life and ministry, Jesus put you in the driver's seat. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, he has delegated his authority to you and me and expects us to use that authority as we pursue the life and ministry that he has laid out for us. And even though I'm mainly a topical teacher, I'm finding out that there's a way you can do some expository teaching of particular verses along the way, even in a topical teaching. Call it a blended delivery, if you will. In other words, when we read some of the supporting scriptures concerning our topic today, which is using your spiritual authority, we'll unpack some of the scriptures that we read along the way, even if they're not exactly germane to the topic. If there are things we can learn along the way, so much the better. Amen. So let's begin by reading one of the most significant passages of Scripture in all the Bible, Matthew chapter 16. We'll read verse 13 through 19. Absolutely a mind-blowing Scripture. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? You know, Jesus asked the disciples a pointed question, which is really crucial when it comes to the plan of salvation for all of mankind. Who do men say that I am? You know, some will acknowledge that Jesus was a prophet, but they stopped short of recognizing him as Lord, as the Son of God. So the key question every man and woman has to answer is, who do you say that I am? And if your answer is anything other than Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, you're in trouble and you need help. Amen. You know, Jesus told the Pharisees that if they believed anything else about him, they would die in their sins. It's over there in John chapter 8. He has a long dialogue with them, trying to convince them that he was the son of the living God. He was the Messiah sent by God to Israel, and they were resisting him at every turn. He finally, I believe, gets a little bit frustrated, and he says, if you believe not I am he, you will die in your sins. That's pretty serious business. You know, and if that applied to the Pharisees, the most religious Jews in the whole world at that time, it certainly applies to the rest of us Gentiles. Amen. Who do you say Jesus is? Verse 16. So Simon Peter answers the question. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that just means Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
So with that answer, Peter establishes his identity as a believer in Christ. And consequently, he is one that was saved from judgment and wrath. But Jesus had more to say than just that. So let's keep reading. Verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Amen. There's a lot in these scriptures, so let me break them down best I can. Verse uh, 18 and 19. So binding and loosing is kind of misunderstood these days because it's not part of our modern language. You know, we would say it like this. Whatever we allow on earth will be allowed in heaven. And whatever we don't allow on earth will not be allowed in heaven. In other words, when we use our legitimate authority to bind and loose in Jesus' name, representing Him, heaven backs us in the use of that authority. You know, keys here speak of spiritual authority. And Jesus makes it clear that He is delegating His authority to those who recognize Him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Peter, from the Greek, is a word that means large rock. Upon this large rock, indicating that he would be a leader in the early church. And on this rock, this is a word for a mammoth rock, like the rock of Gibraltar. On this rock, I will build my church. And that word there, church, means governmental authority on the earth. And the gates of Hades or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, He's saying, if I might unpack it some more. And I also say to you that you are Peter, a large rock, a leader to come in the body of Christ. And on this rock, this mammoth rock of revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord, on that rock, I will build my governmental authority on the earth. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. Everybody follow me. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. So let's talk about governmental authority of the church. You know, the concept of governmental authority dates back to ancient times. We know that from history. There have been kings and kingdoms. There have been empires and emperors for thousands of years. These days, though, we're more familiar with terms like presidents, and administrations running the affairs of state for America and for other nations. But the concept is the same. Authority is given or vested in certain individuals to carry out governmental responsibilities to keep countries and kingdoms running smoothly. But these are all examples of natural governmental authority. But the kind of governmental authority that I'm talking about this morning and that Jesus was talking about to his disciples is primarily spiritual in nature. And this is what Jesus was telling them when he told them about the keys of the kingdom. Keys speak of authority, and he wanted them to know that he was given the church spiritual authority. 
You know, it's pretty heady to contemplate, but individual believers and the church at large have the responsibility of exercising authority in the spirit realm. Listen to this. To hinder or destroy the works of the devil that negatively affect the affairs of earthly nations, the affairs of men, and actively impede the spreading of the gospel all over the world. It's our responsibility to engage in that realm to remove the hindrance so that the gospel does go everywhere all over the world. Amen. Jesus put it this way in Luke 19, 13. He said, I want you to occupy until I come. Occupy is a financial term, basically, there in the Greek, and it means to produce fruit for someone you're working for or to make money for a master. But I like the English definition of occupy, which is a military term. It means to take ground, spiritual ground from the enemy and hold it until Jesus comes back. Amen. And when he does come back, Jesus will exercise both kinds of authority, spiritual and natural. He'll be the king of the world, spiritually and naturally. Let me show you that in the scripture. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Very famous passage of scripture. Awesome. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So here Isaiah prophesies that when Jesus comes back the second time, he's coming back to rule and reign over the entire world. And we're coming back to rule and reign with him in case you didn't know it. The phrase, the government shall be upon his shoulder, means the government will be his responsibility. And he'll be fulfilling that responsibility with all the authority of God behind him. And we'll be ruling and reigning with him with all authority given to us by Jesus himself. So what's my point in all this talk about spiritual authority? Well, we might as well learn to use that authority now since we're going to be using it for centuries during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Amen? But lately, I've been wondering... If I might be a little overzealous, I might be overdoing it a bit with binding and loosening and using my authority given to me by the Lord Jesus. Lately, I've been kind of wondering if I'm over the top. That is until the morning of October 7th, almost two months ago. I had a vision that I've shared only with my wife and a couple of family members, but I kind of held it in reserve because I wanted to wait for the right time, and I believe this is the right time. October 7th, Thursday morning, I had a vision. And in that vision, Trisha and I were sitting in the back seat of our Honda Pilot in our driveway, and Jesus was sitting in the driver's seat. I was on the left side, directly behind him, and Trisha was to my right. Suddenly... Jesus turned around, and with a smile on his face, he tossed the keys into my hand. End of vision. 
I got up, I'm like, okay, Lord, what was that all about? You know, I've had some time to meditate on it, and I'll tell you what I get out of that encounter so far. You know, cars are metaphors for our life in ministry. They get us from point A to point B, you know, in the timeline of our life. Amen? And I believe what the Lord was saying to me in that vision was very simple. When it comes to your life in ministry, I gave you authority. I put you in the driver's seat. So use that authority to help you follow the map that I laid out for you. Amen. I don't think the church is overutilizing its authority. I think the church is underutilizing its authority. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking for demons over, under every rock and every tree. But I am determined to be more aggressive when it comes to exercising spiritual authority when I'm led to by the Spirit within. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, but the violent take it by force. Amen. That's Matthew eleven twelve. It's time for us as the people of God to contend for some things in the Spirit. Amen. In our lives in ministries. It's time for us to contend for some things in the Spirit for our nation, for our world. All right, let's press on in the Word and see how we can apply this fundamental truth to our lives and ministries. Mark chapter 4. We'll read verse 35 through 41. Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. Very famous passage of Scripture. In fact, all of the ones we're going to be reading today should be familiar to most of us. So this happened after a full day of ministering to the multitudes. It says here in verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. You know, I think about this all the time when I read this passage. If the big boat was sinking, what about all those little boats? They must have really been in a hurt locker. Verse 38 says, But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on a pillow. He wasn't worried. He didn't have a care in the world. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? That means they were more afraid of what he did to the wind than the wind in the first place. What kind of man is this? That even the wind and waves obey him. We thought we knew this guy, but this is a whole new dimension we haven't seen before. So what are some of the takeaways we can glean from this famous passage? Now I've written them down here so that I don't forget any of them. And by no means... Are these all the takeaways that we can glean? But I think some of the more significant ones. Number one, Jesus told them to go to the other side. You've heard this preached before. 
So getting to the other side of the lake represented the will of God for Jesus and the disciples. Number two, it's, it's not clear how much control the enemy has over the forces of nature, but it is clear from the Scriptures that he has some. Verse 3, and, and the enemy whipped up a ferocious windstorm which threatened to sink their boat and prevent them from crossing over to the other side. Again, I know you've heard this preached before. Number four, Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith, for their fear, because he had already told them to go to the other side. Amen. They should have known that God would see them through to the other side, that he would not let them drown if they would put their faith in him. They certainly should have believed that God was not going to let the Son of God sink in the middle of a lake. Now, some teach that Jesus expected them to rebuke the wind and calm the sea themselves. But I'm not sure they had been taught about that level of authority that early in the ministry of Jesus. I think he was just rebuking them for being afraid, for not realizing they were going to make it, even though it didn't look good. So the final thing that I get out of this, the final takeaway that I glean is this, there must have been a reason that the enemy didn't want them to reach the other side. So what was that reason? Well, to answer that question, we have to keep reading the story, amen? This time, though, I'm not going to wait till after the passage to summarize the takeaways. There's just too many verses. There's 20 verses. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak as I feel led, as I go through the verses. Amen. A little bit different from what we just did. So Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. So after they made it through the storm, it says here, then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Praise God, they made it to the other side, just like Jesus intended. And just like he knew that they would. Verse 2, And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. So clearly this man was demon-possessed. And the demons in him gave him supernatural strength. So much so that no one could bind him or even lock him up somewhere so he wouldn't hurt anybody. You know, he must have been a pretty scary dude. Amen. All people could do was avoid him. It's almost as if the enemy used this demonic possession uh, to kind of make a no man's land where nobody would want to come near that region. Amen. Nobody could penetrate at the people on the other side of that barrier to bring him the gospel. It was like a wall of darkness that the enemy had put up. You're not bringing the gospel into this region. You're not bringing the gospel into what we will find out here in a minute is called Decapolis. Verse 6 says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. 
You know, that's an amazing statement. You know, as we're going to find out, this man was literally possessed with thousands of demons. Yet they could not prevent him from running to worship Jesus when he recognized who he was. Amen. If you're demon possessed and you want to be free, Jesus can set you free. Verse 7. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now a Roman legion at full strength at that time was about 6,000 men. So we're talking about a lot of demons here. Verse 10. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. So what do we learn here? Well, we learn that demons seek to inhabit men to have the most expression that they can among men. But if they can't inhabit a man, their second choice is animals. Amen? Verse 13, and at once Jesus gave them permission. You want to go in the pigs? We'll let you go in the pigs. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. No wonder they ran off the cliff into the sea. Because if you do the math, there was an average of three demons per pig. Simply too much for a pig's intellect to handle. You know, they say that pigs, grown pigs, have the intellect of a four-year-old child. So imagine somebody with an intellect of a four-year-old child that's suddenly invaded by three demons. So their instinct was just to run off the cliff and die. You know, but I think Jesus was one step ahead of them. He knew that pigs were considered to be unclean animals. They shouldn't have been raising them for food anyway. So I think he got a chuckle out of how things turned out there in the end. Praise the Lord. Don't tell me Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor, even in a situation as serious as this. So verse 14 says, So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed, and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So what do we learn from this? This is the way I see it. When the power of God is on display, when spirit-filled men and women stand up and use their God-given authority to oppose the enemy and his plans, it frightens people who don't understand such things. Verse 16, and those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you 
and how he has had compassion on you. Verse 20 is an amazing, amazing verse. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. So he went about all Decapolis sharing his testimony. Now, the region of Decapolis was called by that name because it contained 10 cities. Praise God, because Jesus and the disciples made it to the other side, a demon-possessed man was, was delivered, and the one who had previously been a barrier to the gospel ended up being the key to unlocking the whole region of Decapolis and getting the gospel preached to 10 cities. Amen. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to the other side. He knew what he was going to do when he got there. He knew what was waiting for him on the other side. And that's why the enemy tried his level best to see to it that they didn't make it. Because it was going to be a massive blow to his kingdom in that region. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Jesus came in, he turned an impossible situation around, and one that was a barrier to the gospel came and became a key to unlocking the whole region and spreading the gospel everywhere. Amen. So in conclusion, let me wrap this up by simply saying once again, when it comes to your life and ministry, Jesus gave you the keys and put you in the driver's seat. He gave you authority, and he expects you to use it. So when the enemy brings the inevitable storms of life along the path that he has laid out for you, don't be afraid to stand up and rebuke the wind and calm the sea with words of authority. Peace! Be still in Jesus' name. Do it because of the victory that waits for you on the other side. Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Forrest's message, Jesus Put You in the Driver's Seat. If you are in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 10 a.m. for coffee and fellowship and 10.30 for worship and service. If you would like to learn more about us and hear more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.